Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast that is tired of coming up with ways to say welcome to the podcast. Maybe it's just a a lazy thing on my part. That's it. 2018 is going to be the year of the lazy. This is the Pack Filler Podcast in studio. Nope, we're not live anywhere. Pack Filler in studio. Um, It's been a while. Hey, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Hope it's going good. Hope you're listening to this sometime in the winter because... If not, it probably the references are going to lose it, and it's going to just outdate the show. Ah, hope your holidays are going great, you guys. I'm not, you know, Merry Christmas. Also, I'm not afraid to say Merry Christmas, but uh, you know, New Year's Eve is right around the corner, so here we are. Um, I'm looking out my studio window right now, and I'm supposed to get seven to eight inches today of snow, which is great. Except I haven't skied yet this year, and I don't exactly have the cash reserves to go out there and blow money for my entire family on a day of skiing when you don't know if the weather's going to be great or not i really want a fat bike you guys i really want a fat bike i just think that'd be just, uh, i don't know that my problem is if i get a fat bike my wife's gonna actually she'd probably love it if i if i got her one though too so that's the hard part how do you add more bikes to your already overstuffed storage of bikes and justify it Therein lies the question. This podcast, once again, gotta say thanks to our friends at Noon Hydration, N-U-U-N-Life.com. Those guys have been very kind to me, giving me stuff to give out at the live shows, and they've been supporting the show for the last year, and they have just recently said, yeah, okay, we'll let you do it for another year. So we'll see how that continues. Big thanks to those guys. Um, I'm, I, I'm not lying. I put my money where my mouth is. I am currently drinking in my... Nalgene bottle. They, they don't sponsor me, but in my bottle, I have uh, a couple of the vitamin tabs because I don't want to get sick. And I tend to drink a little bit during the holidays. So my immune system's a little weak as it is in the first place. But 
you guys already knew that I drink. Hey, thanks for coming to the live shows. We've been getting great turnouts with those. We just uh, got an agreement to do some more out of our local area. We got a new, um, actually, we got a new local venue that we're going to be doing some live shows with. Badass Backyard Brewing. You gotta love the name. Has agreed to host us here now that River City Brewing is switching to more bottling and they're closing their tap room. I don't think we ran them out of business, but only time will tell. But Badass Backyard Brewing has come on to say they they would love to have us for the live shows here in Spokane. We're working on some other venues, trying to get something going in Portland, Oregon, maybe back to Peddler in Seattle again also, and maybe some things a little bit headed east in uh, the Montana areas, and who knows, maybe someday other places. If you know of a really cool cycling-based pub or bike shop that lets me drink beer while I host a show, drop me a line. Patrick at packfiller.com or through Facebook or through Twitter. Give it, get, let's start that communication because uh, the live shows have been going really popular. People are having a lot of fun and hopefully they're fun listening enjoyment for you guys. And so we want to be able to take that show on the road um, and bring all the personalities other than my own to your local watering hole or bike shop or whatever it might be. So those have been a lot of fun. Thanks, you guys, for uh, supporting those. And thanks to Noon Hydration for being one of the sponsors once again. Ah, there. Got all that out of the way. You guys have any goals yet for the new year? I'm trying to figure out new ones to to keep me motivated, to keep things going. I found an event in... uh, I don't even recall where it is, but it's it's a big, long gravel race. I think I'm going to do that in the spring. That'll give me something that I know I have to get out there and start training for. Trying to find some other ones. I'm not really thinking my road racing days are going to consist of a whole lot of big USA cycling-based events. But we'll see. You never know. Um, at least the, the local races are always kind of fun to do as long as they're still in operation and still in existence. Um, but other than that, it's turning into... I got to find other reasons to train and other things to do. And um, so far, Zwift has actually been helping me stay motivated. I've been getting on Zwift and I've been loading up books, audio books on tape. It's, it's addicting. I, I just finished. I know I'm probably late to the table. If you guys haven't read Ready Player One and if you were in your 40s, you will know all the pop color ref, culture references from that book. It's it's a great book to ride your bike to and, and laugh along with some of the pop culture references. Uh, read it before it's an, an actual movie out there. So that and Zwift is is my key right now. And that'll hopefully get me going through till spring when I have a 100-mile gravel race to do. Yikes. Our guest on the show today, I think I referred to him as a part of the holy trinity of mountain bike racing. And that does not necessarily put undue pressure upon the man. Charlie Kelly started it all in Marin. He didn't claim to naturally start the mountain bike, but he claims to have started mountain bike racing, and I fully believe him. If you know the story of Repack Downhill, if you know the story of he, Charlie Kelly, with Gary Fisher, Joe Breeze, and Tom Ritchie starting a mild revolution in the cycling world that has become a part of all of our lives, you'll definitely want to tune in and listen to the great Charlie Kelly on the Pack Filler Podcast. Let's do it. All right, you guys, today's guest is the reason cycling isn't just skinny tires and uptight middle-aged men in Lycra. 
He, with a few other famous friends, were crazy enough to envision what we now refer to as mountain biking. He's literally written the rules on the sport and is also a member of the Mountain Biking Hall of Fame. So please welcome with me to the show, the great Charlie Kelly. How are you, man? I'm great. Thank you very much for your call and thanks for your interest. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you know, I, I, I say this at the beginning of pretty much every one of these interviews as I like to kind of get an idea and perspective here. Your website states it best, um, and I'm going to quote it. Marin County is not the place where the mountain bike was invented, but it is the birthplace of the sport of mountain biking. So what was the idea that became what we all now refer to as mountain biking or mountain bike racing? Well, my friends and I were certainly not the first people to get an old bike and take it out on a trail. Uh, I knew a lot of people that did it before I did. We may have been the first people that also owned fancy European race bikes at the same time that we owned those old bikes. And um, we also were pretty competitive among each other, among ourselves. And, um, you know, downhill racing, well, it started with every ride because every ride in Marin County goes up until you run out of up. <laughs> and uh, then uh, nobody just turns around when they hit the top of something, they hang around for a bit. But uh, in the early seventies, when there'd be, you know, six or seven of us out on our town bikes and we'd push them for a half an hour, 45 minutes up a hill. Uh, but somebody would make a move for his bike and it would be on. And uh, <laughs> it, you didn't have to say, by the way, why don't we risk our lives for no stakes at all? Uh, because you didn't have to say that. You would do it anyway. And, um, and this led to a lot of smack talking. And, you know, it's kind of cool when you're three or four of you guys dicing on a trail or something like that. But when the group started getting to be, you know, eight, nine, ten people, um, these informal races started getting pretty hairy. And so we came up with the idea of the time trial because we all had raced road bikes, and that is kind of a road bike thing. They call it the race of truth, you know. You Hell can't yeah. complain uh, that anyone messed you up. And um, <laughs> and just, you know, that was really the Marin County contribution that really pushed things in the direction that we now call mountain biking because it was the fact that we had a competition um, amongst ourselves that uh, really – uh, inspired us to put a lot of energy, money, whatever, time into the bikes. And because some of us had, a lot of us had hand-built, you know, race bikes, if you set your 1937 Schwinn next to your, uh, your 70s Konago or Chinelli, and you say, look, I actually see some room where we could improve this, wow. you know? And uh, maybe we weren't even the first people to have that thought. But we were the first people to pull the trigger on it and spend the money and do the research. And when I say we, I mean primarily my uh, longtime associate, Joe Breeze, um, who he he's the guy that moved it into the, uh, the 21st century, if you ask me, because um, he designed and built that bike in the 70s that really changed everything. So you're, you're saying that you guys did have a history of racing on the road and through the USCF at the time? Was that you guys did all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I don't even remember if they called it that then. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but we were all members of a bike club. In fact, that's pretty much how we all came to associate with each other. Uh, 
we had started a bike club in the early 70s and uh, members included Gary Fisher and Joe Breeze and Otis Guy and uh, uh, Mark Vendetti and quite a few of the initial repack racers uh, were just guys from the bike club. So you guys just met as teammates and then, and so what took, what was the initial idea? What was the inspiration to say, Hey, let's take these things. Let's go ride them in the dirt. I, it was, I we take it, was it all a very advantage. Specific day. I can tell you this. Really? Okay. Uh, this uh, friend of mine, a guy I'd known since sixth grade, uh, lived at uh, the, I lived at one of the highest elevations uh, of a house in Fairfax. <laughs> and there was a trail that near his house that went out to the Boy Scout camp where I had, swum and done all that stuff, uh, you know, uh, when I was eight and nine years old, yeah. uh, 20 years earlier. Um, and he said, gosh, remember when we would take our bikes out on the trails when we were kids? Well, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Gary Fisher and I were roommates at the time, and we had a couple of town bikes. And so uh, he said, hey, let, let's throw the bikes in the truck and bring them up here, and we'll, we'll take them out on the trail. Okay. So there were three of us on the you know, three of us and two bikes because Gary and I each had our personal bikes and the other guy had the pickup truck. And so uh, we went out on this trail and the trail we chose, uh, it slopes slightly uphill. It's not real steep. Uh, and, you know, we'd switch off. Uh, one, two guys would ride and one guy would jog along. And, uh, uh, hey, this is kind of fun, you know. And we rode and, uh, and ran until the trail turned steep enough, though it was really going to be a pain to continue. And then we turned around, and that's when we had the epiphany, if you will, which <laughs> is that even on $10 worth of junk bike, coasting downhill on a dirt road is rather thrilling. <laughs> and uh, it didn't matter that the bike was junk, and it turned out that coasting downhill on that dirt road was a lot more thrilling than running behind your friends while they laughed insanely while they rode downhill so uh uh that inspired us to you know take our bikes out more and more often and uh uh really just uh, directed our club it seemed like everybody in the club eventually had a shrimp town bike of some sort so now these uh, Yes, go ahead. These, these things, I'm, I'm trying to think of my old Schwinn Cruisers that I, I remember as a kid and things like that, you know, just huge weight a ton, coaster brakes, all that sort of thing. And at what point did the modifications start coming out? Well, the, the very first modification that anybody did, and really the guys in Larkspur who were at least part of our inspiration were way ahead of us, was, hey, a front brake, yeah. you know, uh, because uh, all the bikes had was a coaster brake. and and a coaster brake uh, on a steep dirt road is more like a suggestion than, uh, you know, uh, anything that's going to stop the bike. Uh, and a front brake gave you immensely more control. So that would be the very first uh, modification. Uh, and that one had, you know, the guys in Larchburg were way ahead of us on that one. Um, and uh, that brake would either be a front brake or some kind of a cantilever brake. Schwinn actually had a cantilever brake uh, that was... Uh, standard on some of their high-end bikes in the 30s and if you could find one well you could use that or yeah. there were a number of drum brakes that you could uh, build a wheel on we would um, find one of those old uh, crate or apple what do they call a uh, orange peeler or apple crate a schwinn 20 inch bike okay had a front had a front drum brake it was drilled for 28 spokes 
and we just like drill a few more holes <laughs> and lace it up on a 36 uh, spoke wheel. I mean, uh, okay, so that was the first modification, and of course, gears yeah. were the next. Um, we were not the first to do that, right? I know lots of people did it before we did, um, and we were inspired by some guys from Cupertino, now well known as the Moro Dirt Club. Um, but uh, gears on the bike certainly made a gave it range, you know, yeah. and that was that was huge. So, the, the, first of all, where did the term repack come from? Uh, well, obviously, uh, the story's been told a lot of times. Uh. Uh, when you uh, ride down, this repack is uh, 1.8 miles, and it's 1,300 feet of descent. It's about a 14% grade average. Oh, my God. And uh, because that's an average, there's actually places where it kind of goes uphill. So you, the steep parts have to be on the order of 16 to 18%. And um, uh, one of the guys, really one of the inspirations for the whole thing, was the biggest guy in our crowd. He weighed over 200 pounds and uh, had 50 pounds of bike. And uh, the coaster brake was just not made for that kind of <laughs> abuse. And uh, at the end of the run, well, there would be just smoke pouring out of that hub. Oh my I gosh. mean, it was just a joke. <laughs> uh, and you'd have to go home, and all the grease would be gone. You had to repack it with grease. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, it was really a joke, but it stuck. And in <laughs> fact, the name made it briefly onto official maps before they realized that they were uh, actually uh, celebrating uh, kind of an outlaw event. And then, then the maps kind of changed back to the Cascade Canyon Fire Road. Okay. And then, and so that event, that, that event that kind of started off with a bunch of guys going, you know what, I, I think I can go faster than you can down the hill and they, these types of things. So you guys started to turn it into something a little bit more official. Um, what were those first races like, and how how was that response? How quickly did it grow? Well, when uh, the first one was really, you thought, gosh, you know, we've been, uh, there's really maybe half a dozen guys that really would be smack-talking with each other, and we <laughs> thought, hey, let's just get that crowd up there, and we'll do the race against the clock, and we figured out a timing system, and uh, we had the race, and then I realized, well, I don't know if I realized it right then, but I have since, that there's a reason why the baseball season, they play the other 161 games after the first one, which is <laughs> it's fun to play baseball. And, uh, and it turned out that even losing the downhill race was almost as much fun as winning it because you got the one thing that everybody wanted, which was nobody in front of you on the road. Yeah. And um, and when you go on the group rides, well, there's always going to be that complication. And it was like, wow, this is like the purest form of this thing that we have come up with. And I don't know that anyone else came up with, well, I'm pretty sure that if, if anyone else had come up with a downhill time trial, I would have heard about it by now. I'm pretty sure we invented that. Yeah. And it was that that really sparked things because, like I say, one wasn't enough. And... Yeah. Uh, and it turns out that four days later, we were back again. And uh, then five days later, we're back again. And after that, I went out and I bought some real timing equipment. And I spent a lot of money, a lot of money then, 150 bucks in 1976. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and bought some really digital, some good timing equipment. And that really kicked it off because uh, by because that first, 
meant that I had quite a bit of incentive to put on races. I spent the money, and uh, and it also made me the guy. It yeah. was kind of a group effort right up until then. But once I spent the money and owned the time, time and equipment, it was my race. Okay. And uh, uh, I didn't really plan it that way, but it was kind of nice because I had this thing that everybody loved me for, and who doesn't like to be loved? (laughs) (laughs) Was now I'm, I'm assuming it's kind of that similar, you know, one minute interval, things like that, uh, you know, in terms of staging all that. Um, the one thing that just keeps popping into my mind is the time period and how great it must've been because I, I, the one thing that I keep thinking of is there's no way you could do something like that today with liability, with all this, you know, extra charges, insurance costs and things like that. And, and how nice it, is to just simply say, hey, let's just go out and ride. Did you have to deal with those types of issues at all? Well, it, that kind of cropped up eventually. I mean, come on, it started off as a goof. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, it's like boiling the frog. Things really develop <laughs> in a, you know, gradually, and you don't really, there's no line that you can say we, we crossed the line then. But, in fact, that line was crossed in 1979, January 20, when KPIX, uh, local TV station heard about this and they came out to film the race. Okay. okay. And uh, of course, as soon as the gang heard that, hey, we've got a TV crew out there, well, everybody who had ever raced yeah. came out for that one, and including a whole bunch of people who had never raced. And one guy uh, crashed and broke his wrist. Okay. And um, that was our first significant injury. I mean, we raced without helmets and we'd been doing it for years three years up at that point, but um, this guy, a guy I didn't know, had come out to the race, had injured himself, and was looking for someone to, you know, help pay for the injury, and at that point, I realized that I was exposed, that as soon as people I didn't know are showing up to race, well, I didn't, anyway, that was a lesson for me, and that pretty much ended it for me, Uh, because at that, by then, the mountain bike scene was developing very quickly, and I had a, a lot of other things that I could turn my attention to. Well, yeah, and at what point did you, and, and you know, you're now also, you, you know, the holy trinity of mountain biking you guys are, basically. When did you guys yeah. consider to say, hey, maybe we should start producing bikes? When did, what was that decision to do that? Well, it actually, once again, everything's an accident um, because uh, it took me a year to talk Joe Breeze into building uh, what became one of the most important bikes of the 20th century. Uh, and once he had built that, um, really, 10 bikes, I thought that would saturate the market because it really looked like a huge market at the time. Yeah. But, uh, of course, Gary had not, uh, my roommate Gary, had not got one of those bikes. He was off uh, working in Europe uh, on a race team when when the bikes were ordered, and so he didn't get in on that. And so I... Uh, I'm riding around on a hand-built bike, and 1978, we went out to Crested Butte with our bikes, our new bikes, and Gary was still riding his old Schwinn. Well, after we did the gnarliest ride any of us had ever done, Gary's Schwinn just fell apart in Aspen, right? I mean, <laughs> half an hour after it would have been a really, really big deal, but by then, they just throw it on the truck and, you know, yeah. ship it home, but he got, Wow. You're riding a 37 Schwinn, and these guys are riding hand-built bikes, and your bike fell. Anyway, Gary had to catch up, but Joe Breeze is not a real, he's not a professional bike builder, and it had taken him a long time to build 
those bikes. So Gary went to a couple of real professional bike builders and ordered similar bikes because by then everybody was familiar with Joe's bikes. Uh, Tom Ritchie was the guy that came through first and uh, Gary, um, you know, Gary got a bike. And so uh, once again, we didn't really put any more thought into marketing this stuff, but Tom Ritchie had made his own epiphany, which is that he'd been building road bikes for seven or eight years. And when you build a road bike for somebody, they come with six pages of specs. And um, uh, and every road bike that Tom built had to be absolutely custom. Yeah. But he realized that in mountain bikes, or we didn't have that name yet, but in these new bikes, that nobody was had enough knowledge to tell him what to build, and uh, that the design was uh, you know acceptable. Uh, the GeoBreeze geometry, although a slightly different configuration. Um, and so Tom realized he could build five or six of these new mountain bikes or fat tire bikes uh, in the same time it took him to build one custom road bike. Wow. And even if you're making like, even if you're charging a lot less, you're churning out so many more that, uh, that there was, well, Tom Ritchie is a guy who is about efficiency and money. Anyway, he realized that if every tube set is the same, well, I can tool up to produce those tube sets. Okay. And so he built, for example, he built the jig. This all came down later on, but uh, later on he built a jig that, for example, would cut his down tube and he could pay a, a guy five bucks an hour and in an hour he would have 50 of those down tubes. Yeah, you okay. Know? And, um, and it cost him 10 cents a piece to knock out. You oh, know, man. and so uh, Tom just got into it, realized that there, he could make a lot more of these frames, but so he made a bunch more on his own without even talking about to Gary or me or anybody. I didn't even know him at that time. And then he found out that there was no market for these bikes in Palo Alto. It's only 50 miles from Marin County. Okay. But the only place where anybody was going to spend that kind of money on those bikes was Marin County. And the only guy he knew there was Joe, well, Joe and Gary. Uh, Joe was not going to sell bikes. Gary might. So he just kind of fronted a bunch of bikes to Gary. And later on that day, Gary found me and said, hey, look, look at these beautiful frames. Hey, you want to sell bikes? And <laughs> it was that casual. And um, yeah, that sounds like fun. And really, it's it's almost out of a some goofy novel where we fished all the money we had in our pockets out. And it was 200 bucks. I don't know who we... <laughs> It wasn't 100 bucks a piece, uh, but the total was 200 And we marched down to the bank and opened a checking account and later on rented a garage to build our bikes in. And that's how our company started. And that was not a business plan, <laughs> <laughs> which is why the company fell apart later on. But, uh, but um, that's how it came together. So uh, Anyway, so go what, ahead. No, no, yeah. this is awesome. What what eventually took you out of that realm? You, I mean, obviously the the concept, even hell, the, even the term of mountain bikes. If I'm not mistaken, you you were you were the guy who kind of coined right. that. Yeah, and then um, eventually it, it looked like the company started to grow, and you decided to kind of go off and 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 take a different direction. And and what was the decision there? And and what was the direction? Well, the decision actually was forced on me because uh, uh, the company. Uh, first, the structure of the company was extremely vague. Yeah. Tom is building frames, and Gary and I are assembling the bikes and marketing everything. And uh, 
and purchasing all the uh, the components and so forth. But there was no flow chart or anything like that. And um, uh, when it was just the three of us, well, that uh, was relatively uncomplicated. But we started having to hire employees and starting to spend money that, um, in fact, we actually owed Tom. But the problem is that the company was capitalized by Tom taking 20 bucks worth of tubing and turning it into something that was worth 400 bucks. Yeah. And... Um, uh, and he's, this stuff comes to us and we sell the thing and we give some of the money to Tom, but we're also uh, trying to expand the company at the same time. And the bottom line is that Gary and I got hugely, very deeply into debt to Tom, uh, which is a very complex situation because uh, we all depended on each other. I okay. mean, we were the marketing arm for Tom's stuff and... Um, Tom was the supplier for the stuff we needed, but we it was not working out financially, and it was a really big stress and strain because it um, Tom was going, hey guys, I can't go on like this, and uh, we're all realizing that. And uh, Gary's dad stepped in and said, look, I see a real opportunity here, um, and uh, he was willing to invest in the company and take care of our outstanding debt to Tom, but not on behalf of his son's friend, but on behalf of his son. And so yeah. uh, there was some uh, fairly uh, hardball negotiations that went on, but essentially uh, I allowed them to buy me out because the option was to stay there and owe a lot of money to Tom Ritchie, you know? Yeah. And, um, uh, and then at that time I was, uh, you know, doing my magazine also. So I had plenty of things to keep me uh, keep my interest, and um, it just seemed like rather than do something where I owed a lot of money and didn't see a way out, I'd just do the magazine instead. Yeah. And so I sold my interest uh, to Gary and his father and uh, moved into the magazine game. So the magazine itself is a great segue there. Um, it was... What what was the inspiration for that? Um, Fat Tire Flyer is you know legendary within that kind of stuff as as the first first source where we could get information on that sort of thing. And um, was it just kind of hey I'm going to write a little flyer here and send it out? And then how did it grow into what it became? Once again, it's like the bikes. It was an accident. <laughs> didn't really mean for it to happen. Uh, we had all been members of the Road Club, Billow Club, Camel Pius, and so at one point uh, in 1980, we thought, why don't we put together a club, a mountain bike club? And it would, you know, the idea being to address the environmental and all the things that were starting to crop up around us. And um, so we had a meeting. And at that meeting, um, we, what do clubs do? Well, uh, you know, they have presidents and treasurers yeah. and sometimes a newsletter. And, and so uh, my then girlfriend, uh, Denise Caramagno, uh, and I said, hey, well, since I had written a few articles, I mean, I was the only person that had ever been published in that room, said, hey, we'll do the newsletter. And Denise came up with the title, Fat Tire Flyer. And as soon as she said it, of course, we all fell on the floor and said, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> and, um, and so we, uh, we published a newsletter for the club. Well, that was the only meeting the club ever had. Uh, and the only thing that ever happened at that club was that she and I agreed to do a newsletter and we did one issue. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. But then there was no more club. Yeah. However, that issue said on the front page and by the way, I don't know if you've seen this. It's the average PTA newsletter is a, a lot nicer. This is just like <laughs> photocopied. I mean, really goofy looking. And uh, but it said issue one. And we also went out to Crescent Butte that year, and we handed it out. Uh, you know what, Crescent Butte. So uh, people say issue one. Well, where's issue two? So, yeah. right, well, we'll knock out another one. And once again, it's like boiling the frog. It just kind of like. <laughs> creeps up on you, and uh, uh, we learned about magazine production. I mean, really, not really hard to photocopy something, but uh, eventually you move into typesetting and real art, yeah. and we hired, uh, you know, graphic people, and, and I learned how to publish a magazine, and it was really fun. It lost a lot of money, but it was really <laughs> fun. <laughs> so you, you, hear, you hear, you know, since since the inception of the sport uh, to what we see now in terms of, of mountain bike or off-road racing and riding and things like that. Um, obviously there are going to be some very, uh, you know, blatant differences that we would see, but um, of all the experiences you've, you've seen throughout what's going on, what um, do you see both positive and negative differences about the sport, about the industry and about even about cycling journalism? Well, uh, let me just say, I can put the positive and the negative into yeah. one concept here, and that is that um, I got a fairly good claim that I invented downhill mountain bike racing. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether or not, hey, I'm not going to argue it here, but anyway, I was in at the beginning of that. Okay. Uh, it is now, what is it? It is now 40 years later, and the bikes have advanced. The sport has advanced to the point where, okay, here I am. I'm riding pretty expensive equipment. I've been doing this for a long time. I no longer have the skill set that it takes just to ride top to bottom on the modern downhill course. Forget competition. Yeah. Just go from the start line to the finish line. The skill set and, and the, well, I mean, there, the equipment is, is assumed, but the skill set required to negotiate a modern downhill course just blows me away. And so there's the good and the bad altogether i can't ride the stuff that i have a pretty good claim on inventing you know? yeah no i agree so, i i mean i'm even looking at, at cross-country races uh in the modern format where it's uh, it's almost like a cross between the old school cross-country and like a, a trials course or a, or, a, or a cyclocross course um i i look at these guys these pros riding that kind of stuff now and i'm thinking to myself i've been riding for for you know 30 years and i can't do something like that Oh, and uh, of course, the other uh, side of that is now I'm old. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you gotta gotta do something on Monday. You don't want to necessarily be in traction or in a neck brace over the uh, for yeah. the start the next week. Um, how about how about the uh, the you know the industry, especially you know in terms of journalism? I know you had to deal with uh, the sale of the magazine and things like that, and that you know was rough in, in terms of how that all went. So, um, what's changed about all that now? Well, when uh, of course the Fat Tire Flyer was the only magazine uh, for mountain bikers, but by the middle to late '80s, the demographics of that market had you know attracted the attention of people who were really in the publishing game. And uh, the late 80s, you saw maybe four or five titles come out of really big publishing houses. Yeah. And uh, the magazine, the Fat Tire Flyer, was on such a shoestring that we had to collect the advertising revenue from one issue to pay the printer before we could send them the copy for the next one. I mean, yeah. it was really just like barely hanging on. And as soon as the... I mean, you got Daisy High Torque and uh, uh, Rodale and uh, a couple of others jumped into that market with plenty of resources. Uh, it just was, uh, it was impossible to compete. And um, uh, also, once again, the uh, by 1987, uh, Denise Carmagna, who had started the magazine with me, had long sold her interest. And so I was now working with people that, I hadn't really chosen, um, and it was just frustrating from a structural standpoint. By then, I was being offered plenty of uh, money to work for the mainstream magazines, and uh, I just cut the cord uh, largely just because it was just too frustrating to try to do the shoestring operation, you know, yeah. when I could get a salary from like Rodale, yeah. you know, so yeah. I, I just uh, took editorial positions with big publications okay. and, and uh, dropped the flyer because <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't make it, it, it was losing money anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in your years in the sport, um, I, I can think about when I first started cycling in the eighties and then um, up until today. And I can, I can personally think of some of the best years I recall in terms of development of the sport, in terms of the popularity, uh, mountain biking. I've, I've, I've seen mountain biking grow to a huge popularity. It died off a little bit. And now it seems like it's coming into some sort of a Renaissance again. Um, do you have any years that you look back upon and go, that was, that was magic. That was Camelot, so to speak. There were, there were a couple of very important years. Of course, uh, the day that we decided that we were raced downhill against the clock, clearly the the world of cycling changed from that point forward. Yeah. Uh, 1978, when five Californians showed up in Crested Butte, and Crested Butte was perfect prime territory for mountain biking, but all they had was town bikes. They were a couple of years behind us, and as soon as we showed those guys the real deal, well, Crested Butte became obviously mountain bike central for Colorado. Uh, and then 1985 was the year that Don Douglas persuaded Magic, uh, Magic Mountain, uh, Mammoth Mountain to allow him to put on a downhill race at a ski resort where the lift took you to the top. Yeah. And of course that would have, that was our dream. It's like, yeah, we talked about that one for years thinking how, what, how cool would that be? Well, Don Douglas finally talked a ski resort into allowing that to happen. 
because for some reason ski resorts had been resistant to mountain biking uh, until then. Yeah. And it's, I didn't understand that. It seems to me it's the same demographic who rides mountain bikes in the summer, people who ski in the winter. But yeah. anyway, bottom line is that by introducing mountain biking to a ski resort, uh, the event, the uh, Kamikaze Downhill, is still one of the most popular mountain bike events in California. Yeah. Um, and uh, it just blasted open the door to real you know, real challenging downhill because it was going to die unless someone, you know, I wasn't doing repack anymore by 1985. Um, and downhill was in danger because ski resorts are the obvious place, but they weren't having any. And this guy finally talked a ski resort into it. And it was so successful that every ski resort in the country now has a mountain bike program. Yeah. Um, and then Norba had to come about. At one point, there had to be some way to yes. maintain, not necessarily govern, I don't know if that's the right word, but establish a protocol. Um, and what was the story behind that? Well, in 1983, by 1983, uh, there were races taking place uh, around California. You had, uh, uh, there was one in Reading, the Whiskey Down, uh, Whiskey Town Downhill. There was Central Coast Clunker Classic. There was the Victor Vincenti's races in uh, uh, Southern California, and uh, there were races, uh, the Rock Hopper in Santa Rosa, and it was clear that uh, two, two things were necessary to really move racing forward, and one was a common set of rules. That is, you would like the rules to be the same when you, you know, travel 200 miles to a race. Yeah. You want to know what to expect. Okay, that's one thing. And then the other is that I was very well aware that liability exposure was a problem. And the only way you're going to get any kind of insurance is through some umbrella organization that, for example, has safety standards. And okay. the safety standards don't have to be very extreme. You know, you got to wear shoes and a helmet or something like that. But, <laughs> uh, but um, anyway, those were the two driving uh, uh, concerns that started NORBA. Uh, we needed. We wanted a common set of rules, and we wanted to be able to protect the promoters uh, from liability. So, was, so, was this yeah, just so. you guys sitting down with a, a notepad and starting to jot down ideas? Did you take some sort of a, a template from another existing sport, like downhill skiing or something like that? Or, but what, where, where did these come from? It, uh, you know, uh, we made it up on the spot. Uh, <laughs> a bunch of us uh, uh, met uh, mostly at my house, a couple of other locations, but mostly at my house. And we basically hammered this stuff out just in conversation because at that time there were not so many of us that you couldn't really do this in conference. That is, you know, there's eight or ten people you can discuss. When it gets to be 20, it's, it's unwieldy, yeah. you know. But uh, the core group of eight or ten people, and I'd have to look at the names to see who they were. Uh, but, you know, Scott Nickel, Jackie Phelan, uh, Gary, me, Joe Breeze, you know, uh, uh, we hammered out some stuff and uh, clearly came up with enough of a framework to launch. However, uh, Norva became very unwieldy very quickly because uh, we had structural problems with that, once again, from making it up on the spot. Yeah. And uh, it was like eight months later that we sold it to uh, Glenn O'Dell. Uh, sold it. We gave it to him. Because by then, I'm making bikes. I got how much time do I have for this? Yeah. You know? And uh, um, and, and it really needed a firm hand 
where you didn't have to debate every decision, you know. And uh, Glenn took it to the next step. He eventually sold it to uh, one of the BMX uh, uh, organizations. Um, oh, wow. Uh, and uh, Ameri- I think American Bicycle ABA, American yeah. Bicycle Association. And then eventually USCF purchased it. They could have had it for nothing, but wow. they were not ready for this. And uh, it wound up costing them quite a bit of money. They bought it from the ABA. Uh, but the USCF was pretty much cornered because it turned out that mountain bike racing was more popular than road racing. The numbers were huge. Oh, yeah. And uh, and also, mountain bike racing was becoming the entry point for road racing. I mean, the first road race you enter is terrifying. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you could ease into it from a mountain bike perspective, well, well, uh, many of the top pro riders in the world now came up to mountain biking. Well, so, and- and the yeah. sport, the sport has two different feels. As as I've said, one of the problems that I I personally think is killing road racing right now is as as you said, if if I start up and I'm, I'm there at a start line and I I'm intimidated, I'm scared. The culture is different, and if I get dropped, that's it. My day's over. In a mountain bike race, you you get dropped. You're still racing the course. You're still racing within yourself. Right. And so. That culture, uh, it was is a was a big thing. I remember I started in a road background, and I still do race road, but I also race mountain. Um, the culture was so much different. Um, was that just again just a complete accident? As I said in the intro, road racing has an has an attitude. Um, some refer to it negatively, maybe as elitism. Um, mountain bike doesn't have that just constant you know, middle-aged man demographic. Do you know it, what it, about it, the sport that sets it so apart? You know, it's interesting when you put it that way because uh, in the beginning of maybe major league mountain bike racing, um, a lot of uh, the factory tre- teams, uh, Ross, Specialized, and so forth, would hire pro racers. Yeah. And we're, pretty much every pro racer you're going to get, if he's any good, had already been racing on the road because who's going to be a pro racer other than somebody who'd been racing bikes, you know? Yeah. And yeah, some of them came purely through mountain biking, but many of the initial mountain bike pros had been, if not professional, at least experienced road racers. And they had to put all that stuff aside when you get on the mountain bike. I mean, it is a different world and the same guys would be racing with different attitudes. Yeah, I I remember seeing, you know, first name that pops into my mind, Ned Overend. Ned spent a lot of time on the road and um, and then, did, you know, committed that crossover to, to Mountain, which I think turned out to be a pretty good idea. Worked out for him. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, of course, he was a uh, cross-country runner, too. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, uh, <laughs> interestingly, uh, when Ned first got on the scene, his skill set was a little shaky, but man, <laughs> the, the engine was unstoppable. Yeah. You know? uh, but uh, clearly, his skill set has evolved. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you had to kind of pick maybe uh, a person or, or a group or anything that kind of personified, you can't pick yourself, by the way, uh, mountain biking from your years in the sport, who just kind of represented that sport, who would it be and why? 
Well, uh, gosh, I mean, there are a lot of aspects or facets, but, yeah. you know, the Morrow Dirt Club for just the pure, crazy, inventive fun, because, like I say, those guys inspired us. They were for, before us. And, you know, John Tomac and yeah. Ned Overend, uh, head and shoulders above, I mean, yeah, you got your Steve Peets and, you know, the, the new guys. Yeah. But those guys, uh, man, they raced on stuff that people wouldn't even ride to the corner anymore. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and uh, 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 they raced when, I don't know, you hate to give anything a golden age yeah. because uh, you're setting yourself up to, uh, to be uh, some sort of elitist where, you know, uh, nostalgia was better when I was a kid. Yeah, well, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do but, that all the uh, time. Yeah, but uh, anyway, uh, that era, and of course, all the pros from that era are my personal friends, and I don't know any of the people now, so uh, it could be that my own personal history colors my opinion. Yeah, well, no, I'm I'm very famous for that. You know, I keep I say the '80s and the '90s were where it was, but you don't have to say it. I won't make you. <laughs> what's uh, what's saddle time like for Charlie Kelly now? As you, you, how much time you get out there and go around? Well, I, you know, I. I ride with old guys now, uh, and uh, uh, but I have to say, uh, the best thing about my bicycle experience, uh, the 40-year or whatever bicycle experience, is that I do not pay for bicycles, and I ride really <laughs> nice ones. Uh, and I, I could make a phone call and get pretty much any type of bike I want. That's not the kind of yeah. privilege that one abuses <laughs> and i'm i'm well set up for bikes but uh that really uh, uh if, if i got anything out of the experience that's the coolest thing you know so and also hey i wrote a book you do that yeah that helps that helps <laughs> let's plug that yeah absolutely oh I'm, i was gonna ask you about the book but um how many how many bikes are are in the kelly household right now oh gosh uh Eight or nine, Eight or nine. Uh, okay. of which one belongs to my wife, one belongs to my daughter. And, uh, you know, I mean, I have very collectible bikes, but I, I'm i not a bike collector. They just kind of pile up around yeah. here. Yeah, well, and, no, I'm uh, the same way. And I just never get rid of them. Yeah. But, Do you still have the original one that Joe built you? Uh, well, yeah, but that's in the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. It is, uh, display okay. Because uh, my bike is referred to as Breezer number two. Okay. Second bike that's so completed. Um, uh, and breezer number one is in the Smithsonian. So, uh, if they want one to display, they have to use one of the others and where that's, that's a good place for me to keep it. Oh man. <laughs> so, um, actually let's go to the book. Tell me about what, what, what that came about and how that was written. Well, uh, for one thing, uh, when the economy crashed in 2008, I thought, wow, what can I do to make money? Well, I did have a unique experience and I am capable of writing it down. So I did. And, uh, uh, took me a while and, uh, then it took me a while to shop it and sell it. Um, but I have seen so many accounts, third person, third hand, you know, I interviewed a lot of people and synthesized some sort of, uh, story about how this mountain biking thing came about. But really, Everyone had a different experience. It's like Rashomon, the movie, you know, where yeah. uh, everyone tells the story differently. And I thought, well, look, I will tell the story because first I took part in it. 
Uh, it's not like I have to interview anyone to know what took place. Yeah. Uh, and I will tell the story as my own experience rather than try to say this is what this person did or thought. I can tell you what he did because I watched him do it. Yeah. I can't tell you why unless I ask him, but I'm not going to. So uh, I just basically wanted to tell it from a first-person standpoint where it's really indisputable. I mean, you can argue about what somebody else said, but you can't tell me how my life turned out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So it seemed inarguable to tell my own story. Um, I This might sound like, I'm I'm idolizing a little bit here, but I can't fathom to sit back and and think to myself, "Wow, you know, I I came up with this idea and now it's being, you know, participated and celebrated." Do you ever sit back and just kind of go, "Holy shit, I we came up with this. This is this is. I mean, what a legacy, man." Yeah, well, uh, trust me, I, that's you know, <laughs> that's not original with you. Yeah, and uh, and I have two. Uh, there are two ways of looking at that. And certainly the question, yeah, that thought has occurred many, many times. Uh, I look at it in two ways. Uh, emotionally, I can't wrap around that. Uh, I can't say, I cannot personally take credit for something so immense. Um, I know I took part in it. Yeah. Um, on an intellectual basis, and the book is really where I put the intellectual basis, I can say, okay, this event led to this event. And if you follow, if well, if you work backward, you're going to come to the top of Repack on October 21st, 1976, if you work backward in mountain biking. Yeah. And, uh, and then there are other events before that, but that's like the bottleneck, if you will. You know, everything that came afterward came through that bottleneck. And there I was standing there at the bottleneck with six of my friends. And uh, so intellectually, I can say, yeah, I took part in these activities and these activities changed the world. Emotionally, well, it's a different story. And I, I'm sure you can understand the conflict. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the book, um, I, you know, Fat Tire Flyer Repack and the Birth of Mountain Biking, um, where can all these people listening to this show get their hands on it? Amazon has it. A baby. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the big guy. Yeah. Okay. So, and uh, uh, Barnes and Noble. Anybody that sells books has that one. Great. Okay. Um, I guess one of my things I want to ask is, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to compare myself, but I, I'm, I'm looking at your bio and all the things you've done throughout your life. And um, you've, you've done a lot of different things, uh, roadie for a rock band, uh, you know, piano moving and all that kind of stuff. It's the, um, is, is there something that, that one of those jobs that you were just like going, how the hell did I end up here? Well, uh, I tell people that I've smoked a joint with Jerry Garcia, and when I met Janice Joplin, <laughs> she was wearing red panties and red shoes. Uh, and, uh, and, and here's the irony. I actually had <laughs> more adventure after that, but uh, the rock band in the 60s, San Francisco rock band in the 60s is a world-class adventure all by itself. Yeah. Right? And possibly worthy of a book. The difference is that I wasn't directing anything. I was just an observer there. Yeah. And in the bike thing, I was directing quite a few of the activities, um, a little more of a key figure. Uh, but the rock and roll adventure was, um, well, 
pretty profound at this point because uh, I met a lot of people who are now dead. You know? <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, Charlie, I, I guess, you know, again, not to ham it up too much, but uh, thanks for getting together with your friends and deciding to take your bikes off road. Um, you, you know, you're what you guys just kicked around with and had a great idea is a passion in my life. And it's a huge part of who I am. And it wouldn't have been without, without you guys saying, Hey, I bet you I could beat your ass down the hill. Um, you know, my, my descending skills suck, but, uh, I still love the sport. And if it wasn't for you guys going out there and playing around, it wouldn't happen. Well, like I say, uh, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody could have seen what seen coming, what eventually arrived out of this. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I, um, I have been blessed in so many aspects of my life that, uh, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm the luckiest person who ever lived. And yeah. by the way, Tom Ritchie says, you know, you say that every time we get together. So <laughs> I can't tell him that anymore. Well, <laughs> shit, if I could get free bikes, I'd be kicking around pretty yeah. happy. I just, I'd like somebody to walk up to me and buy me a beer someday for crying out loud. You're getting yeah. free bikes. So. Well, well, thanks so much for your time, man. I appreciate this opportunity to catch up with you and, and, and find out your story. All right. Well, thank you for the call, and I appreciate the attention. What did I tell you, you guys? I, did I gush too much? Maybe. I don't know. I love talking to people who are pioneers who think of new things and, and just kind of naturally stumble upon them and, and make things great. And I love the fact that he said he smoked a joint with Bob Weir and met Janis Joplin in her underwear. Ah, the legends. Wish I got free bikes. Some of you assholes out there need to give me free bikes. Or beer. I'll take, I, I don't have high expectations. I do want a free fat bike. Get me, get me two free fat bikes, and then I'll say that podcasting pays off. This has been another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast. Uh, live shows are coming to you, hopefully. You'll let us know where we need to go, other than straight to hell. Um, the studio shows, I'm lining up more. We're going to talk to some other people in the sport now that it is off season and nobody's going too terribly crazy. Keep the feedback coming info at packfiller.com or Patrick at packfiller.com. Check us out on iTunes. Give us a rating. Tell us what you think. Follow us on Jesus, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I'm not going to Snapchat because I'm over the age of 40, and anybody who Snapchats over the age of 40 is either an overprotective parent or a creeper. We will talk to you guys next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.